Hello and welcome to the first post-part 18 episode of Twin Peaks The Return, a season 3 podcast. I'm producer and host Andy Hazel, and before we go to our roundtable discussion and then interview with Damien Lund, I thought I'd take a few minutes to get my own thoughts out about the show. Um, as a host, I find the thoughts of my co-host Hayley Inch and our guests far more interesting than my own, but a few of you have written in asking for my take, and Hayley has reminded me several times that I've never really expressed an opinion on the podcast thus far, and so here comes one more. As you could probably tell from listening to our episode about Part 17, I loved how it went from the totally ludicrous but tonally perfect to the profoundly moving, with the firewalk with me footage, the revisioned opening to Episode 1 and Julie Cruz back at the roadhouse. I desperately wanted that to be a sort of new, beautiful, shiny reality, one that we could somehow splice into the reality in which we live for a kind of super-powered blast of catharsis. But it was also something I wanted just as long as the show gave it to us, because of course that's not how Lynch Frost endings work. And also, as Doppelkoop and Cooper and any passing experience with Buddhism tells you, what you want and what you need are two very different things. Which brings us to part 18. Now, the common experience for part 18 seems to be one of initial unsettlement followed by emotional satisfaction and then wonder and a kind of awe at how Lynch and Frost gave us the ideal ending that we couldn't have predicted. But I seem to have processed it in reverse. So I finished watching part 18, which I thought was a nearly emotion-free slow burn of a finale and felt a profound gut punch. It felt right, but I couldn't really tell you why yet, which I thought was a beautiful example of how Lynch will often do this, where you physically feel something before you can put it into words. And so once I stopped feeling and I started thinking, then I felt this anger, I felt what was missing and what I thought was needlessly sacrificed for this ending. So part 18 ended by throwing us back into the real world with Laura's cry of re-traumatisation and that felt inevitable as soon as it happened. But it was made all the more powerful by what we did see and what we might never see. So of course it, the story had to honour Laura and Cooper's journey, but this wasn't like episode 29 in which Lynch described as an ending, not the ending, because of tensions with the ABC, the television production company. And as Sabrina Sutherland said in last week's interview, Lynch saw the return as a success, which is a rarity for him, so we can assume he gave us exactly the ending he wanted to give. And because it comes back to Laura and Cooper, this ending, and I've loved some of the theories, some of which we'll explore later, that it's thrown up, there was, like there is in real life and in the reality the show seems to have finished in, no neat ending. But to me it seems like Frost and Lynch, once upon a time, could have juggled a satisfying story about an intuitive detective and the woman who is a living mystery at a town full of characters we grew to love and have it all work. But here, with a few exceptions like Ed and Norma, Nadine and Dr. Jacoby, characters like Becky and Stephen and Red and Gersten and Billy and, of course, Charlie and Audrey, characters with whom we spent a reasonable amount of time and were directed by Lynch to consider as characters with whom he wanted us to get to know, felt needlessly sacrificed by poor pacing and editing. And I don't think their stories were abandoned as some kind of narrative masterstroke in which their lives were left suspended for our imaginations to carry on their story. I think in many cases their stories could have been told and wrapped up earlier with no impact on... Cooper and Laura's storyline at all. I mean, I feel like there was a lot of times we finished an episode by saying, okay, so the pieces are moving into place, we can see how they're going to kind of resolve and next week we'll get to Jack Rabbit's Palace and oh, today was September 30, so tomorrow would be October 1st, but instead we get scenes from September 29th and the 30th and Doppelcoop is no closer to Twin Peaks and Dougie seems no closer to waking up. And I get that we're playing with time and identity and a circular narrative that seems to be very important to understanding some of the more plausible theories going around at the moment. 
But these stories, like Audrey, are kind of retrospectively just tools to enhance Cooper's journey and to increase our understanding and the power of Part 18. And I get that Audrey, with her mind and body apart, is possibly able to access multiple realities, which is why she's trapped in a coma, or that this is one way of understanding her situation. But she was given lines like, "'Sometimes dreams hearken a truth.'" and was in constant anguish about her identity. But I think a better storyteller could have managed an ending just as surprising and as satisfying and as emotionally fulfilling as the one we got, as well as filling out the town that gives the show its name. Instead of often playing the same hand over and over again with another brace of new characters and more examples of corrupted innocence, I think it's fair to ask what their point was. I also think it's possible that extra footage will be released at some point and we might get some kind of closure. Anyway, here's a prediction I'll confidently stand by. In 50 years' time, Twin Peaks The Return will be seen as one of the greatest works of art of the early 21st century. And coming up now is Exhibit A in my argument for this. To add to the deluge of thoughts, expressions and ideas, here are some of the guests we've had on over the run of the podcast. Thank you again for tuning in to Twin Peaks The Return, a Season 3 podcast. So, here we are, roundtable discussion. Should we introduce ourselves before you decide <laughs> to yeah. take apart my rant? Yes. Yeah. Okay. I'm Andy Hazel, the producer. Are we recording? Yes, we are. Oh, we are. Okay, good. Um, I'm still recovering from actually hearing a trademarked Andy Hazel opinion. I'm Hayley Inch. Hi, everyone. Who's here? There's so many people here. <laughs> hi, I'm Bismuth Hoban. Hi, Tembi Sadal. And hi, I'm the curl lick in David Lynch's hair, Jess Pinney. Wow. This is why <laughs> Jess is my best friend. <laughs> Yes, no one saw that coming. Um, Thank you all for coming and thank you for listening to that rant that um, I shared with the listeners earlier in a pre-record and just shared with you now live. It's extremely exciting. (laughs) So exciting. I think it's going to take me time to process Andy's um, rant the same way that it's taking me time to process (laughs) Twin Peaks. It's it's like a new side that I'm not used to. The return, you know, it really is the journey that we all take from part 18 onward, I feel. Because there is all these individualizations of the way that the show is presented with these people and their stories. But anyway, so you guys are all on board with my rant, it seems. (laughs) No one's picking me up on anything. I, um... Um, I think before I have a hot take on all of the characters that we met, the new ones, the old ones that we met that didn't seem to get any kind of resolution. I think I'd have to watch the whole thing again. My main take from 17 and 18, which I've only watched both twice, which I've, and I, you know, my brain has basically just like chopped out chunks of whole episodes and like, so I don't have a great memory for what's happened, but I have a sense of um, feeling and emotion Mm -hmm. that I've had throughout it and I sort of my overwhelming takeaway from Twin Peaks is that life is ongoing no matter who you are even if you're dead sometimes too there's aspects of the dead that still live and failure is real and failure happens a lot and like Hayley was saying in last week's podcast, trauma exists and cannot be undone, even if you want to. And I sort of, I feel the sadness and the frustration with these like unfinished business and all of this sort of stuff. But I also feel like that is something 
to accept and it's something to ch- like challenge yourself to accept because it's part of life and that's what I that's the kind of optimistic read that I have which is almost outside the show but I don't actually think it is it's kind of like this it's the message not the story and I think they're two separate things and I think the message is really optimistic and is like a really powerful reminder to live and don't like don't live don't try and fix the past just like yeah just keep living and wanting answers and wanting explanations is actually in a way wanting more life but I also when I was watching the end of 18 again just went damn this is sad so yeah Mm. Mm. absolutely I actually just want to ask you a question. Why do you want the stories to be resolved? Well, I feel like the there was a a promise. There was there was in a way no, I don't know about that's too big a word I suppose. There was an illusion that there was some import that we should give to these characters. I mean, like I'm like I'm, I don't feel frustrated that we didn't get to see the other side of the tree to find out whether Stephen shot himself or not. That sort of stuff I don't really mind. But there is a certain way that the show was sold and the way that it was suggested. Um, in before the show even began, we were given little snippets and and uh, scenes from part seventeen and eighteen, which we now find out are part seventeen and eighteen to promote the show. There was a lot of lore on trams and on buses, and there was a huge amount of money seemed to be given to Stan in Australia to spend on promoting Twin Peaks. And so we were kind of lulled into this idea that it was going to be a story. And I love the way it subverted that. It was fantastic. You know, I didn't get frustrated with with Dougie. I got frustrated with the idea that these things. It seemed more like wayward. It just seemed careless in a way. It seemed like. A, that there was, there needed to be another filter, but sometimes, sometimes between Lynch and the finished product, it, to be able to give us like all everything that we could have gotten that we got at, out of it now, like the mysteries, the the fact that things aren't solved, was could have been given as well. I feel like there was just this richness that, that could have been promised about uh, populating Twin Peaks. Instead, it was felt like just just being hammered with the same story like over again, like people being sick from Sparkle, random people in the in the roadhouse having like shitty lives. There was all these different this stuff that I felt like it's just a bit too one-dimensional. In in seasons one and two, we got that, but we also got all this other stuff as well. We got, you know, there was this like layers. It felt much richer. With this time, it felt like much more shallow, which is possibly a part of it being a manufactured reality, which is you know the part of some some uh, theories. Do you think that has something to do with your expectations about what a story is, as opposed to what a story actually? Yes. Possibly, but I also felt like there was an openness you needed to go along with this. You know, if you started bringing expectations, you were only going to... It was a stupid... That was a bad move. You were well, only going to get frustrated. I went in with zero expectations because I didn't look at any of the um, promo and I just didn't even think about it until, like, three days before when I set up my sound system. I was like, right, I'm ready for Twin Peaks. <laughs> <laughs> and having absolutely no expectations was definitely the best way to watch it because I just didn't... Mm-hmm. didn't have any of that like there was nothing in me that was expecting stories to resolve in fact I got really excited because from the very beginning I was like oh my god this is totally going to be a trauma narrative which is <laughs> you know one of my kind of areas of interest so yeah yeah that, which is awesome I really love that um the question I'm interested in is why would you expect Lynch to resolve it well, That's I didn't want him to resolve it. Like, I didn't expect a bow. That was what well, Part 17 gave us the, the potential ending with a bow and then just, like, tore it up again, yeah. which is fine. 
No, it's not, I didn't want everything resolved. I mean, I love the ending. I thought, it, like I said, it was like this emotional gut punch that felt mm. totally perfect. But at the same time, it felt that it came with this needless sacrificing of other stories and a richness that Twin Peaks had and that we thought it had and that we th- that in our minds when we think about it and we think of seasons mm. one and two, there's, there's just so much more there than, than there was this time around. I still think this is the greatest work of art of the 21st century. Like, it's probably <laughs> never going to be topped. It's completely brilliant. I am nitpicking because, you know, yeah. this is... Also, I think, I think my confusion is that I feel like, to a certain extent, the expectation that there is some sort of coherent narrative to these pieces is one of the things that the show was really clearly defying from the very beginning. We weren't supposed to get an easy road back, and it was always centering around questions of... Know, the of Dougie, of Cooper, of identity and the return to identity. I don't know for sure that it's necessarily lazy editing. I don't know for sure that it's necessarily that it was an unnecessary choice. It depends on what you prioritise in telling that story and whether they serve a purpose because you want to give an audience that deep interiority that we got with a lot of characters in the original run or whether we're trying to talk about spiritual matters. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the things I've noticed is that so much of the return is obsessed with confronting spiritual ill. And that you can't really give a coherent resolution to every char- to yeah. the other plots. Yeah, never. If if your question really is what does it mean to be sick in the spirit? What does it mean to heal? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So were you sorry? Were you satisfied with orgy storyline? Yes, but we'll come to that later. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I was just also thinking in terms of that richness that you didn't feel was there necessarily with the ex- the new characters and the um, I guess the colouring in of Twin Peaks, the town. I always considered it to be. It seemed to me it was a way of thinking about trauma in relation to place and where trauma takes place and can a place be traumatised as well as a person. And so a lot of the ways that I was reading the, I guess, the degeneration or even gentrification of Twin Peaks is a part of this process of, like, erasure and distancing that happens in trauma as well and it kind of... I think those characters and those scenes can be thought about in a rich way with that behind it, perhaps. Mm-hmm. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah. yeah. But was your argument that, like, these characters were just servicing... That was part of it, I think, yeah. Um, I feel, when I feel like the stories that the seasons one and two managed to cover compared to what we managed to cover in The Return, which was a much deeper, richer story about fewer subjects... Then it felt like with the return, you know, with one and two, you had the soap opera elements going on. You had all these extra layers. You had the amazing story of of Cooper, and then with Firewalker, then you had it of Laura. But then I felt like the distance they covered here was was just not quite. They didn't seem to quite get as much in. It was, it was even though there was two hundred seventeen characters or whatever, it felt like they were just there because Lynch wanted to spend a day hanging out with you know Ashley Judd or whoever you know that he gets along really well with or his son or his wife or whoever you know or as we find out in the interview that'll be attached to the end of this discussion there was a lot of the crew members just turned up you know and were put cast as extras and so it seemed to be more more like him having fun which is brilliant and you know it is an amazing work of art and everything but I just feel like there was 
a lot of a lot of it was obviously edited to, to for mood or for pacing because you know, he, you know I'm no complaints at all about the green onions sweeping the floor of the roadhouse scene. That's totally fine. It's beautiful. It's like a picture. It's just sitting there on your screen, and this the more you look at it, the more you get out of it. It's, it's wonderful. And it's the sort of stuff nobody else is doing. I just figured you could have had that as well as as some more satisfying storyline. No, I think that for me, I sort of see it slightly opposite to you in that I see this as a far more focused, in-depth exploration of one thing rather than mm. a, a sort of um, less in-depth exploration of multiple things, if that mm-hmm. makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I think I see a general point that with an 18-hour runtime, they could have folded in a lot more of those ex- explorations of those characters' narratives. But that would require Lynch to be interested in those characters' narratives in and of themselves rather than interested in the story he was telling. Mm-hmm. And Lynch is, you know, Lynch. He <laughs> lets stories go by the wayside if he feels like they've done their time in the story, in the main narrative. Like, once the emotional arc is complete, he doesn't often see a need to return. Mm. Well, I also feel like Frost may well have given longer, richer stories that just got pushed aside in the in the editing room or perhaps there's yeah. stuff that might come out later. Also a thought that I had the other day is that I think the scene, and I think this is why I was really confused by it when we first saw it, but the scene where Becky calls up Shelley and Shelley's like, come over and have some pie. That was their resolution. Mm. Yeah. Like it's a, and it's a very like Marge Simpson, <laughs> like <laughs> let's all, you know, yeah fix our troubles with cake and ice cream or whatever. Yeah, and a certain kind of resolution for Bobby is watching Shelley go off to kiss some other man who's mm. all the things he kind of used to be when he was really messed up. But with magic. But with magic, apparently. <laughs> or, you know, sexy Richard, or Richard was hallucinating, <laughs> yeah. who knows? Yeah, actually, we'll never know. Yeah. sexy. <laughs> I, still, I still think that it could have been Richard hallucinating of being mm. that gant. Yeah. So um, who here has read The Secret History? Yes. Yes. Great. Okay. Because I would love to know wh- how you feel about that now that we've got the two individual works of art. Because you know, we were told, you know, Lynch never looked at the book. That you know, Frost, <laughs> Frost is writing writing a lot of it on the set. Um, but there's little bits that cross over, and then other bits, well, a whole swathes that have nothing to do with, with 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 this at all. Before we talk about this, I should probably confess that. Jess and I have kind of joked sometimes that I'm like the lynch to her frost and it's because I'm not really great with the whole story kind of reading thing. <laughs> um, we, we have had a previous guest who said to us that Andy is the frost and I'm the lynch. Uh, so, interesting. Yeah. I'm happy with that. Yeah, so I mean I understand things much better through like sound and, and vision and stuff. So I also listened to it as an audiobook while I was driving. Right. <laughs> so a lot of it kind of, you know didn't sink in so jess will have better opinions <laughs> on this one maybe i've like i read it when it first came out and it's been a while i haven't revisited it i did however just finish reading cooper's my life my tapes and the secret diary of laura palmer both of which are great reads and very worth looking into i'm not i really enjoyed the secret history of twin peaks i am like I'm I'm really excited to see how it might fold into the final dossier yes, as yeah, well. Yeah. Mm. And it was just a re- it was a really weird thing to read because I kind of knew that nothing of it mattered. 
Mm. And yeah. that it was like, to me, it was just a really fun, like, oh, my gosh, there's all this lore, there's all this history and stuff. And it's kind of bizarre that there's all these, like, actual historical events that Frost <sighs> is, like, weaving into his strange stories and... Um, yeah, it was a really fun read and also I liked that it kind of – well, I took it to dispel all of the alien stuff, which I was happy about because I really didn't want Twin Peaks to turn into X-Files. But, yeah, I don't know. Do you think of it uh, like problems? I loved that. I loved that as a that's what history is and that's also, that's also what small town history is. Mm. Like this is a dossier that – was put together by a person who lived in a small town, written by the people who lived there. It's not a reliable historical text. No. And I, Everyone has their competing stories and their competing is, versions of what happened. Exactly. And it's, a lot of it is based on gossip and that kind of thing. I mean, there's the first-hand accounts of, like, all of that. But I that, I thought, was a really interesting approach. Mm. Mm-hmm. And... I, and also it was kind of it kind of worked alongside the other books, the Laura's and Cooper's books, because there's stuff in that that doesn't make any sense. <laughs> yeah. Any sense at all, even with the first season, and they came out after the first season. Like they could have made sense, but they totally didn't. So as like there's sort of just these like standalone little bonus goodies to me. And I'm yeah, really excited about the final dossier. Mm, yeah. And this has been on my mind a little bit because I've been reading up on um, some some stuff that's going around with production on the Star Wars films. But there's a you know there's a franchise that is so carefully managed for its canonicity. Like um, I remember I once talked to an author who uh, actually did a few novels, and there is just an endless amount of information that you have to make sure you're matching up with. There's careful timelines. There's birth dates everyone has to be on the same page so that there's no little gate flaws for the fans to find and honestly that seems to be a big popular thing in the contemporary wiki heavy fan culture so boring though i know there's a, there's a certain excitement in going well okay this can't make sense this doesn't add up why can't it why doesn't it add up mm. uh, and being encouraged to be curious i think is one of the things that twin peaks is doing really well life doesn't add up people <laughs> Haley has come down from the mountain to share her wisdoms. <laughs> <laughs> Over the last couple of weeks, we've had quite a few emails in and some feedback, and we've been really appreciative of, of it all, I suppose. Um, <laughs> um, Look, it's, it's an ending that's never going to be entirely yeah, satisfactory, so a, even when you're really yeah. happy with it like I am. Yeah. yeah. I think, you know, I'm, I totally, I, I utterly have sympathy with your position, Andy. I am reveling in the irony that, like, I came into this podcast as the outsider who wasn't really <laughs> jazzed with Lynch business, and it appears I've actually ended up more satisfied with the <laughs> ultimate experience yeah. than the guy who's been in it for 25 years. Yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be getting the hate mail from the dude, bro. Lynch bros, oh, so much Lynch bro hate mail. Yeah. Oh, I don't have the show's finished, guys. I don't have to pretend I care about your opinions. I don't. <laughs> I never do. Well, here's an opinion I quite like. 
Um, and this is, comes from a guy called James Mannion, and he writes, here are some observations, thoughts about the significance of the line, it is in our house now, which I think is really interesting because it ties in the very, very beginning and the very, very end, which is one of the you know the multiple realities. We got to see the figure eight. We got to see Jeffries talking about the infinity symbol. It is in our house now, from the clues the fireman gave Cooper in the opening scene of The Return and on the importance of Laura's screaming. In part 17, when Cooper returns to the night of Laura Palmer's murder and is guiding Laura through the woods, she asks him where they are going, and he says, we're going home. Soon after this, the sounds the fireman told Cooper to listen for are heard and Laura disappears. Her scream sounds similar to when she was screaming in the waiting room earlier in the season and she said, I am dead yet I live, then whispered into Cooper's ear, so perhaps these are simultaneous. The line after listen to the sounds in the fireman's clues is, it is in our house now. Although it may seem as though Laura has slipped out of Cooper's grasp or that something went wrong, the timing of that line, it is in our house now, seems to suggest that whatever it is, it is in the place that the fireman calls our house, at the moment that Laura disappears. Could it refer to the one, i.e. Laura? Could it refer to Judy? After all, the opening scene of Part 17 was Gordon revealing that Cooper had been tracking Judy. Is Laura somehow connected to Judy? What is meant by our house? Is our house the White Lodge? It is also interesting that Cooper responds to Laura's question about where they are going by saying we're going home rather than I am taking you home. This suggests that Laura's home is also Cooper's home, which also seems to be the fireman's home. Whoa. That's that's some nice analysis there. James. Yeah, thanks, you, James. You can send us your thoughts anytime. Good <laughs> catch on the sounds as well, um, yeah. specifically about Laura's sound because I was watching um, that episode and specifically trying to work out whether or not Laura's scream matched the one from episode two. Mm, does. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's good. very much the same, like rustling curtain slash flame sound effect plus. I got, you know, yeah. I got horses. Your horses, yeah, horses. the horses, yeah. yeah. So this is also I thought this was a good one because you guys are here and you know sounds. Yeah. It's your bag. <laughs> So um, I did get a bit of just just them be um, excitement when I heard the <laughs> very initial sounds from the beginning of part one, just before Laura disappeared. I have officially interpreted that sound to mean loss, right? And the idea of it is in our house now means loss, because he, I don't know. I think it's because I you hear it when Cooper loses Laura. Mm. And that's yeah, that's how it sat with me after my recent watch. Yeah, because because the when you think about the cadence of it's in our house now, it's an ominous way to structure a, a, a phrase. You know, it is mm. in our house now. It, it there doesn't seem to be a way where you could say that where it doesn't come across as sounding abnormal or if there's something wrong with the house. Yeah, James also goes on to point out that the the um, our ha- notion of our house is evoked again when Cooper slash Richard finds Laura Laura slash Carrie and he says that he wants to take her home to see her mother. Mm. So we're getting another time that Cooper is leading Laura back home, although it's kind of the third since we see that that scene from the end of part seventeen and part eighteen as well. It's really scary when you think about in terms of this this irritation of Cooper just seems so intent on putting Laura back in that house mm. like putting her back at the site of her trauma and putting her in a you know giving her back to the person who you know we don't know may have helped to facilitate some of that trauma or willfully ignored a lot of that trauma it's 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 very disturbing if you think about it in terms of like some paternal force coming to collect this person and displacing her from where she's escaped to back to the side of where all of the worst things happened to her. Mm. 
Yeah, it's interesting thinking, looking at the ways that it's been represented. I mean, so the Laura's scream occurs at these very key moments. We also, and that, this kind of signifies, I think, you know, a very short, you know, thrilling, in, in a weird way, like way to evoke the, her trauma or to put you in the middle of it. Because we saw at the very beginning of part one the scene of the girl running from the, outside the classroom window, which is like I think the social reaction to this trauma, or the way that you know people she's covering her face, running away, like which is you know the way society often treats women in, in um, Laura's situation. So I think it's interesting to be able to go from that and to have that as a particular scene that was pulled back from because there are so many scenes that you could have taken from seasons one and two, but that was one of the very very few that we saw from from the earlier episodes. I I don't know. I just kept thinking about the idea that Cooper is almost taking instruction from a man who maybe with Bob's help like raped and murdered his daughter. Oh, find Laura. Yeah. yeah. That mm. is it oh, I think I was text ranting to Thembi just about how that kind of sums up this idea of patriarchy just fucking up. <laughs> <laughs> Being like just a dead end kind of approach to things and I really loved someone on Twitter and I can't remember who but they um, juxtaposed the scene of the final scene of Laura talk, whispering into Dale's ear and the scene in Lost Highway where Patricia Arquette says to Balthazar you'll never have me and it made me and like Ooh. I just thought it was such a good juxtaposition mm. and I'm now convinced that when in the last frame of the whole thing where Laura's whispering into Cooper's ear, I'm pretty sure she's saying, you'll never save me and you'll never have me. Oh. I feel like they, they seem a bit more friendly. To be honest. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, but like Lost Highway is so... It's really dark, that scene. Yeah. Whereas there's something about Cooper and Laura where there feels like some kind of... Um, um, I don't know what the word is. Symbiosis. Sim- I was thinking symbiosis, Sympatica. and then I was like, I need to look that up just in case I'm wrong. Um, but yeah, it feels like there's something going a little bit both ways with the two of them. Well, they've always had that, especially Fire Walk With Me. You see that interplay between them that she dreams of him just as much as he dreams of her. Yeah. They've always been in each other's souls. So th- I feel like it's a little, it's something different. I don't know what it is. Mm. I don't know if it would be in the same way that Patricia Arquette says, you'll never have me. You'll never have me. <laughs> it's so easy. It's more oh like, God. it's okay, Cooper, you'll never have me. Yeah, it's, mm. like you'll, it's, it's like reminding him, you know, remember, you'll never save me, you'll never have me, don't try, stop this. Yeah. I swear she was having a little laugh, but I don't know. <laughs> but That's it, the thing, she kind of leans in with a smile to whisper yeah. to him, and it's, it's his face that increasingly becomes more like yes. stiltedly devastated oh, yeah, yes. whereas her mm. she's always grinning the entire time she's yeah. doing it because in fire walk with me she came to terms with her trauma yeah she, there well, was the end well in a way yeah i mean she's dead but she's also <laughs> happy and crying yeah the flickering images before her there's yeah. yeah there's something there was something to that which to me read as processing as I loved how it was almost a juxtaposition of the ending of Firewalk with me. Mm. Instead of her sitting down with bathed in light, you know, she with him with his hand on her shoulder, we get him sitting down and her whispering. Mm. So I like the idea of Firewalk with me. Stares at the credits. Exactly. Yeah. yeah just after we've been shown the, the last few scenes have been shown in our reality. Yeah. You know. Well. 
maybe. Well, yeah, this yeah. is something we can get to. Mm. <laughs> I feel like it would make sense that she's happily telling him, you'll never save me. And you'll never, maybe not. Go maybe be she's free. Not you know, <laughs> yeah. have me, but you'll, yeah. Maybe in that sense. Maybe of, he's liberating her, yeah. yeah. Maybe she's liberating him. Maybe they always have to do it for each other. Sorry, that's what I meant. Yes, maybe yeah. she's liberating him. Well, you can see the, the way that his expression changes. Mm-hmm. It's so it's so precise. Like four or five different... Oh. Acting. It was, <laughs> yes. Yeah, we need... Hang on, sorry. Kelly, can you do your special... Please. Acting. Thank you. Because <laughs> yeah. we got to see some of that earlier with Diane as, mm. in the sex scene with her face is up and her f- expression shifts really clearly several yeah. times. I read her face as... N- like it's a different kind, but it's just devastation mm. in all the Absolutely. different flavors. Yeah. yeah, that scene was the hardest one to watch again. Yep. Mm. Yeah, I bet. Mm. So I guess uh, we, if we're talking about reality, so we want to explore the, how these are being represented by different characters. Because like you know, Audrey is having her own mm. you know, experience in her own pocket of the show, in a way. And well, until the roadhouse scene, and Laura seems to be. You know, able to access these different dimensions. You know, Richard and Richard, Linda, Diane, Cooper seem to literally move between them in part eighteen, which is one way of reading them. Yeah. Yeah. So this, in a way, feeds back. Some people have been saying this in the gates part series one and two, and possibly Firewalk with Me. If we're now in a whole new reality, did all these events even happen? Which I think is nonsense. But there, mm. these, there are so many interesting theories out there. Seems to be to me. It seems to be Cooper's reality that he's made for himself the end of it the idea that it's negated everybody else's reality i think is putting a way too much power in cooper as one Mm. person and i think like if i think the idea that there are multiple realities and everything in a way is actually like a living true concept in daily life because everybody has their own reality and it's a lot more liberating in the end like particularly if you found the ending very difficult to take um the fact that every single character that we've seen has existed through their own reality and has their own means of dealing and continuing and processing you know that's that's a i don't know i I feel like that might be a more optimistic thing that people could cling to if they found, you know, Cooper's ending a, a, a very distressing thing. I think I am not seeing Cooper's ending as the ending. I'm, no. So it's just... So I watched, you know, the last two episodes and then today I watched the first two episodes and they work very neatly as if they're happening after the last two episodes. Like, yeah. it's... I mean, it's very good in terms of how it's doing the circular narrative. And There's I just. So much looping. I feel like there is really no clear indication of where anybody's stories begin or end. And I think that as we go through rewatching everything, possibly different narratives will be happening on different timelines. Not necessarily different realities as such, but just the the place that the narratives are sitting. I feel like, yeah, because just because I've just seen so much criticism floating around in terms of, like, people feeling unsettled or upset that there was no concrete ending, inverted commas, whereas I kind of feel like you could settle on a lot of different things that could be your ending, but I don't necessarily... I, I don't want an ending to Twin Peaks. I don't want to say that anything that we saw was a concrete ending. I don't think it was. I think 
we're all about looping, we're all about stories repeating themselves, repeating back on themselves and constantly spiralling out in new forms. Yeah, well, I mean, that sound of the 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 one that's kind of just before Laura disappears, that scratchy oh, yeah, record yeah. sound, like the first time we hear it, I think, do we hear it? Okay, I'm not sure which one's which, but one time we only hear it once, the other time we hear it looped, and I feel like it's more just saying something about we're in a time loop here. So I've kind of been perversely laughing a little bit at people going, where's the ending? Like, this is so upsetting, because I'm like, welcome to trauma. <laughs> so, <laughs> it's like, hello, this is my life. <laughs> High five. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Trauma buddy. Trauma team. Yeah. <laughs> I also really like the fact that every single season of Twin Peaks has ended with Cooper failing. Aww. Which is really sad for Cooper, but he. But I think it's really, really important. It yeah, yeah, it's really important to set up these things of just like life doesn't really have heroes. Mm. Someone doesn't just sweep in and fix everything, find out who done it, and then everyone's okay. That's yeah, you gotta let go of that fantasy. Yeah, <laughs> or else you're gonna end up like Cooper. Because mm. even the idea that the. Uh, even the idea that he stopped Laura from being murdered doesn't stop the fact that she had been raped and abused and she was like a child by her dad. And also she wanted to be murdered. Mm -hmm. Like that's also like, I know, I know it's not suicide, but she was making a choice. Yeah. And, and part of the whole power of Fire Walk With Me is that she knows what's coming for her and she chooses to face it down. Yeah. And she chooses to resist until the very last moment, knowing it'll kill her, but mm. she's still going to beat Bob. And Coop awesome. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> and Cooper and, in a way, her dad, in a certain sense, to tried to take that away from her. Mm. And I think what we... F I think what we see with Carrie Page is that Laura is both willing and willful and is too much of both of those two things to not to to let that happen to let that be taken away from her mm. and also that like dude that she's killed or yes. whatever the fuck has happened like <laughs> he's holding his hand up and he's got this thing coming out of his stomach that kind of looks like bob or like the bob balls so it's like bob blob so it's kind of like she's no matter like you save her she's still battling with this dude and she doesn't have a guy with a green glove who has to like kill it she's doing it on her own <laughs> <laughs> anyway yeah did anyone else spot the uh vhs copy of the twin peaks pilot in carrie page's living room no, no! Oh, yeah, it's Jesus. just sitting underneath this thing just near the machine gun. Oh. <laughs> Those smart asses. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. It's a bit ludicrous. Um, does anybody else feel that, like, um, Laura's whole journey was somehow cheapened by if she had a green gardening glove, she could have just sorted things out? <laughs> <laughs> could she? Well, mean? I don't know. Could she? Yeah. This is the thing. Like, I think she did anyway. Yeah, she, she did. So I think it would have been a lot cheaper if she did have a green gardening glove that she could just punch Bob in the face with. I think that would just completely negate everything. <laughs> yes, I know why, which is kind of weird and why I get some, a lot of people are taken against Freddie Sykes and his Cockney yeah. superhero story. I, I don't even know. I know we got the, you did it, Freddie. I don't think he did. Like, you think Bob is still out there? Uh, perhaps Haunting not in the, the Bob form, but those black little 
fragments. They just went mm. straight up back to wherever they came yeah. from. I think I, I think we discussed this a little bit last week, where it's like you can you can defeat like you can defeat a bob, mm. say a bob lob, a bob lob. You can defeat <laughs> a bob bob blob blob. You can defeat a Leyland. You can defeat someone who is a practitioner of the kind of evil that was visited upon Laura but you cannot defeat that evil itself because that evil is everywhere and it is I don't know it's everywhere it's innate in people in the you know Mm -hmm. we've all come through these structures where these things are absolutely you know embedded in the firmament of how we construct society and how we construct human relationships. And the only way to even get even close to like defeating inverted commas, that type of evil is to actually attack the structures themselves. Patriarchy. Patriarchy. But yeah, it's really important to always remember Leo did not have Bob in him. There were loads of abusive relationships of all different kinds peppered throughout the whole entire series and the return Mm. and the only people who had bob in them is arguably that we've seen is arguably leland cooper and i guess richard maybe Mm. but i don't know how i don't know how demon semen works so (laughs) um. it's 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 kind of a question i've been thinking about as well because you know i feel like probably far more the problem with richard is probably the same that was the same problem with leo to an extent someone like bobby when he was younger and a lot more rage filled you know that sort of thing it's circumstance that's how men are brought up and it's how men's anger is treated as like this sacrosanct thing that has to be cowed to and richard horn's evil is entirely patriarchally in origin there's just no supernatural element yeah. to it it's just no what bomb. he's been surrounded with it's what the culture is comprised of it's the same entitlement every horn man has had in the show except yeah. for johnny who yeah. Other bag of fish there. Other bag of fish there. But yeah, you, you look at Richard Horn, whose father was Bad Cooper, but then you also look at Sonny Jim, whose father was Dougie, who was created from Bad Cooper. And mm. you're like, well, there's doesn't seem to be much wrong with Sonny Jim, Jim at the boy. moment. He's a good boy, you know? And it all... It, it, it does come down to environment and it does come down to upbringing, but I think what Twin Peaks comes back to, like, again and again and again, is just this stuff is everywhere. You don't mm. need a bob. You don't mm. need a black lodge. You don't need any kind of super supernatural element to, you know, be a man who all of a sudden comes up against something that threatens his masculinity mm. and he reacts violently about it. But aren't they really good metaphors and symbols Ooh, for yeah. all of that? Yes! Well, I mean, that that was kind of what I was going to bring up is that, so I, I feel like part eight was this really central part in it all, you know, kind of saying this all starts with the first you know, detonation of an atomic bomb. And then all these, like... I mean, I don't ever really read this in spiritual terms because that's not some, that's not a way I understand the world. So to me it seems more like we're looking at... Yeah, like, to me that atomic bomb explosion thing is, like, <laughs> um, the epitome of the world kind of operating on fear and going and somebody deciding that we need to protect everybody and... With something that will destroy everybody. Yeah, so it's kind of like this really irrational kind of thinking behind 
who like protection and fear and motivation and what's that word that starts with I? Intuition? No. Damn it. Intent. Intent. It's all about intention because isn't the whole electricity fire thing to do with intention? And then we come back to this like the black lodge is fear and the white lodge is love and it's sort of all just come back to these metaphors of why are you doing this thing that you're doing? What is motivating you? Is that the smartest motivation? What what happens what happens when someone when two people do the exact same thing and they're motivated by different Oh yeah, things. which which I reckon part eighteen was all about that. Because I was yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I was watching part eighteen after you said on Andy said on the last podcast that it was Cooper but without emotion. And I was thinking about how I thought that bad Cooper was Cooper without emotion. But there was a difference between part 18 Cooper and bad Cooper, even though there was a similarity too. Mm. Bad Cooper wanted stuff. Yeah. Very, very he much. Had but so, no, I mean, want. part yes. 18 Cooper. <laughs> had... Yeah, Jennifer Jason Lee. Oh. <laughs> I would Who say that the last one has a lot of want though because of yeah. the, like, the this, you know, desire to save Laura or whatever. But the intent is very different. So there's something about the intention mm. of bad Cooper and the intention of part 18 Cooper that means something, I don't know what, but... Well, I think yeah. you could argue that's all he has. He just intent. has intent. He just has yeah. duty. Duty is a word that sounds like duty, I realised over the week. Oh, interesting. <laughs> when I was overthinking one night. That's really interesting. Um, yeah. <laughs> I love your overthinking, Andy. Oh, God, yeah. there's way too much of it. But does um, this mean that all airports are, sa- are, are sacred spaces free of her influence? Ooh. Hey. Hey. Let that pun settle. <laughs> I'm just going to mellow in that for a while. Yeah. Um, that's beautiful. Thank you, Miss. Um, in time. Right, so all these in Well, this is, what, this is what I was, I was thinking is that, you know, um, Thomas was like, oh, he's a combination. This is the first time we've ever, t- time we've ever seen true Cooper. Mm. Every other time it's either been doppelless or doppelcoop. Mm. And so now we're seeing him. But I, I've th- I see him in a totally different way. I think Same. he's just been, he's like stripped back to being this person that's entirely focused on duty. And it may even be a dream version of duty because we, when he shows the badge, he shows it in a deliberately obtuse yeah. way that we can't see. And, you know, uh, Carrie really wants to leave Odessa. So there's all these other ways. I love how masterfully it's been put together in this. <laughs> Do you notice he's driving the same car that Bad Cooper was driving too? Mm. Yeah. Because kind of, yeah. uh, when I first was watching it, I was like, is this Bad Cooper pretending to be good Cooper? And, it, and it's, it's clean when he goes into duties and dirty when, it com- when he comes mm. out of duties too. Mm. Which, again, could be, is probably to some sort of... Could be a continuity thing, could be a mess with your head thing. <laughs> exactly. I, I still... There's something in the behaviour of, I guess, Richard Cooper, even though he identifies himself still as Dale Cooper. The the way I read him is just of someone who is in the process of and has already at the same time lost everything. And so I almost feel like where Doppelcoop and Bob's motivation is want, it's just desire, that's, the, that's it. It's the only motivation... Richard Coop's motivation is similar because it's about wanting to get back what he's lost, but it's it's a yeah there's a different it's a different flavor of desire I guess, but it's it's just as mm. heart wrenching. Okay, so do you actually have an overarching theory for how you understand Part Eighteen, or are you still kind of open? 
Because there have been a lot of theories going around the last seven days. I'm assuming we've all seen the one where you watch 17 and 18 simultaneously and there's... Mm. Which apparently Sabrina Sutherland has said, no, that wasn't anything we planned for. So There were some beautiful coincidental images that came up. There I sent were, them all yeah. to Thembi today. Like, just really beautiful images and happenstance and that kind of thing. But honestly, I think if anything was meant to be, that's how it would have been given to us. And so I just, I'm like, yeah, cool. Because I tried to watch both of them and it was, it's not watchable. It's not mm. like, and because sound is so important, the fact that you're trying to listen to things with, no, it's not a thing. I do love that so much of the theorising has given rise to curiosity about seeing things in parallel like that, though. Oh, yeah. It's like, a really It's, it's been nice really great exercise. to see so many ways people have just gone, what, how, how do these two scenes look when you put them side by side? And I've also yeah. seen a lot of people who their reading from the synced up version yeah. has now made it really positive. Yeah. yeah. And I think a yeah. lot of people really need that and that's yeah. fine. Yeah. <laughs> Which is weird because my theory on everything is really positive mm. in like a really upsetting sense, but I don't need anything but what was given to us. Like yeah. I'm happy with like as it's presented, it makes sense to me. It's a thing where it's like, I see this is bleak, mm. but it's okay. Yeah. And a happy ending doesn't have to be joyful. A happy ending can mean that the thing you needed to happen happened, and maybe that doesn't feel great, but it happened. Mm. Or maybe a happy ending is a nothing ending. Mm. My first reading of it all was um, pretty dark and probably very... Um, reflective of my own personal thoughts about things <laughs> as okay. opposed to like what's actually in the narrative but maybe that's I mean I'm actually assuming that's why they've created a narrative like this so that you can spend more time like looking at the the way that you perceive reality and how that is not necessarily correct or is malleable in many ways I don't know should I yeah oh, please please was, please so I always had this thing with Cooper, right? So great character, loved him, but also I knew a lot of people who identified with Cooper who were not very good people. Mm. So <laughs> they kind of, you know, would be like, yeah, awesome, I love my pie and my coffee and I'm a really good person. Meanwhile, they're treating people in their lives really badly. And so I was one of those probably few people who at the end when he has Bobby and him, I'm like, <laughs> yeah, that sounds about <laughs> And so then when the return comes back on and there was that opening scene of Bad Cooper, which is like one of my favourite scenes of all time, I was like laughing hysterically during this scene <laughs> when he just gets out of the car and he's so bad. <laughs> and I was just like, yeah, this is the thing. Like all these people who have been trying to kind of like shut off their dark side, they're not looking at how they actually have this, they're doing these incredibly bad things to people. So I felt like there was a really interesting thing happening there. And then as the, you know, season progressed, we get like some really horrible things that Bad Cooper has done. And then the ending comes to this point where, you know, well, actually, so in part 16, where Cooper comes back, I was probably also once again, one of the very few people who was a bit like, eh, not so happy about Cooper coming back like this because I feel like he's been through this massive trauma for one thing and you don't just become who you were before the trauma. And also Cooper coming in and saving the day doesn't make any sense to me anymore. Like there are all these really strong, interesting characters who have done quite amazing things, but now like Diane's flown out the window and Cooper's back to save the day. This just doesn't make sense. And so that 
kind of happens, but then, you know, that incredible part in Parts of 17 where his face just gets overlaid on top of everything and then suddenly everything just kind of goes into question was really profound. And then we move into Part 18 where there's this really strange interactions between Diane and mm. Cooper and possibly similar to Thomas last week, I was starting to think, is this like a, a combination of you know, the, these three different parts of Cooper that we've seen before and is this the real person? Although I don't think it's quite th- quite that neat. And that scene with, like, the the sex scene, which was really upsetting, I sort of did think of... it's It seemed to have these undercurrents of, like, trying to sort of heal or repair a trauma that can't be repaired. And... Yeah, so I don't know, I did, I kind of, I was feeling like the ending had something to do with Cooper coming to terms with the fact that he'd done some bad things, mm. sort of. Mm. But I'm not sure, because then I watched it again and I felt it was really different, but there seemed to, I don't, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's, I, I think it's really important, like, particularly as audience members who, yeah, you know, Coop is really beloved as, as a figure. Like, I came out of the original Watch of Twin Peaks going, like, I think Cooper is, like, my favourite character that has ever been in anything ever because he is such this compelling figure. You don't see these, these kind of characters who are so presented as so innately good and particularly a man always you know, striving to do the right thing and being so positive and always trying to be there for people and seeing him corrupted in the last episode of, of season two is was an extraordinarily stressful and distressing thing, I think, for a lot of viewers. But I think what I really love about The Return is so much of it really makes you want to question your own relationship with that character Mm. and ask yourself why do I like this man so much why am I so invested in his journey why am I so invested in wanting to see him do good all the time and not confront and properly digest the horrible things that the you know quote-unquote bad version of him is doing and I think that might also tie in why so many people were also so upset by part 18 in that it really gives you this weird Cooper where you could be like well yes it's an amalgamation of all the different forms of Cooper we've seen before maybe it's the real Cooper that we've never seen before and he's this really horrible stilted person who can't talk to other people who can't really engage with other people who can't understand you know, other human emotion or or interaction. And I think, yeah, I, I, I understand why there's so much distress around this because essentially the show is saying to you, we presented you with this character that doesn't exist or we presented <laughs> you with an idea, an idealised version of what everybody wants to be and we broke it down and we showed you how that was false and how that's lying to yourself and lying to everyone that someone like this could actually exist in the world as we know it because as as twin as we all know that twin peaks has been doing all through the returns just showing us how sick and awful the world is and how sick and awful we are all to each other and to ourselves 
this is very interesting because I don't trust people who are who present themselves as overly nice. I'm just like, what are you hiding? <laughs> <laughs> I think I, don't, I think um, the way I've always thought about Cooper is that I've thought of Cooper as someone who is tr- who has always tried tried being the operative word to mm. be good. I don't think of Cooper as innately good. I think of someone like Major Briggs. Mm. Or, and maybe Laura as well as being innately good, even though both of them at different times have done things that aren't necessarily good. I'm thinking about people telling me that Major Briggs hit Bobby and I'm like, yeah, but he was disrespecting Mrs. Briggs and Bobby was a jerk. Anyway. Um, <laughs> but I we think, all find our ways to explain away these yeah, things. exactly. But I, I, I've always seen Creeper as someone who his... He's trying to be good, but motivated by a fear of being bad, and a fear or a fear of not being good enough, or something like that. I know, <laughs> and I think that's it, it's so his outward appearance, the way he treats people, is something that is informed by that, and that's why I saw Final Cooper or Richard Cooper as someone just motivated inherently by loss. Because it made me imagine if you're someone who wants so badly to be good and is trying so badly to be good, to come out of something and realise that you've raped two people that you loved, that you've done all of these horrible things, how would your how would your psyche un, like hold up against any of that? If your whole personality has been based on trying to be good and you haven't been able to be good. And so I think there's this total loss of like sense of self and everything like that, which is bizarrely, again, like it's it's all it's just like this these echoes of tr- actual trauma experience and I don't understand how Mark Frost and David Lynch have done that. I really <laughs> don't understand how they've made something that mirrors so closely what so many people I know who have been traumatized go through. It's like it's almost it's almost a like universal part of the experience, even though everyone has different experiences. But like it's really bizarre. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. I mean, I literally was sobbing in therapy last week, going, <laughs> I just don't know what's real and imagined. And like that is totally what they've captured in that story, yeah. which is why I think it's incredible. And I wasn't crying about Twin Peaks just to like make that clear. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't have blamed you. No, if you were. I, I've done plenty over Twin Peaks. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've done plenty of crying over Twin Peaks, but you know that in particular was about a very mm. real situation that just shattered my perception, and that's what I feel is happening mm. in that final episode, which is mm. pretty amazing. Mm. And also the idea of that Cooper being emotionless it's just made me think of the idea of like numbing as being a thing that oh, yeah. trauma survivors do, where they just numb every emotion they have, you know. Yeah. Oh, but also that sex scene was so dark. It was so dark. Well, I think I'm kind of more inside with it being a summoning. Like the, yeah. the, the, the whole oh, theory about yeah. the, how, how this reality, this final one that we see in part 18, is created by the White Lodge as a trap to lure Judy in. And they're purely as all everything's been was set up twenty five years earlier. Like you know, mm-hmm. Laura was taken away and put in Odessa to have a, a yeah. you know, this sort of this sort of you know fit normalized childhood while while you know Doppel Cooper's off in another dimension. And then you know they bring back to you know the, the site of the greatest trauma is the Palmer household, which is where she has to return to. And then actually the scream is the killing of Judy. Yeah, I, mm. I'm. 
I have to say, so in my first watch, I was, you know, obviously just thinking all about trauma because I do that. But, like, re-watching it, I was like, oh, yeah, it's probably what they were doing. <laughs> it was probably, like, more of a story that's all about this magic and all that stuff, but because I don't think in those terms, that's not what I saw. I don't know. Man, I feel like because I've got such a different take to everyone else at this table. Oh, yeah, that's look, awesome. please. Yeah. please show I want to hear about it. Um, well, okay, first of all, just on the topic of Cooper being, like, you know that good person but still having the potential for ruthlessness um that's one of the things i think is really important i think one of the things that defines cooper for me is that he he wants to be what people need Mm. um and i'm just going to quote one of my favorite like lines from anything it's from a game called we know the devil um venus your problem is that you are very nice but you want something and you think that being nice is going to give it to you but it never will and until you figure out what it is you want, every kindness of yours will be full of that want, Ooh. like mine is. Mm, that's yeah, so it's motivation. Exactly, <laughs> and that's the thing. Cooper, in both his forms, wants so deeply and so powerfully. For one version of Cooper, it's he wants his love to light the way. Another version, it's that he wants people to be to be filled with fear. Um, but for me, the ending. From the moment Cooper's face is superimposed, that's where Cooper's reunited with himself. That's where he becomes whole in a certain sense, where he reconciles the doppelganger. Mm. Um, That's why he can see through the layers around Nido that are, you know, hiding Diane. That's why he's able to suddenly understand the layers of reality on which he's operating on, because he's, in some sense, mastered his perception. That's, that's why we get the image of him over the top, because he's now operating on a different level, um, on literally an, an overlay for, from what's going on physically around him. Um, and we see it again. You know, he, when he's in the lodge that second time, um, he is able to open the way out all on his own, unaided. N- no one's ever been shown doing that before. We've never seen someone actually make a way out of the lodge. So I think... Cooper is finding his way to do what he's always wanted to do. Save Laura. Find Laura. And I don't think he's really looking at Leland so much as he's looking at himself and seeing Leland. Right, okay. Um, and when he... <laughs> which is an upsetting thought, huh? Yeah. yeah. But, I mean, he his sympathy for Leland is part of what led him, led him getting in this situation in the first yes. place. Um, so, you know, when he goes to see Phil Jeffries, it's not that he's stepping through time. He's stepping into a dream. Mm-hmm. He's stepping into the dream that Laura has to be in, the dream of the night she died, the dream that she will always be in. So he's trying to pull her out. And of course the grief won't let her go. Of course the horror of what happened won't let her go. And all of episode 18, I think, is him navigating her dream. When he crosses over with Diane, he says, you know, things may be different on the other side. And that's where he starts to that be defined by his want to be what people need. Um, Diane needs to process some of what's happened to her. She's been a prisoner for so long. She's been unable to speak or really uh, perceive the world around her for so long. And I think that sex scene is him offering him himself up as a kind of sacrifice as 
a means by which she can start to confront it and she can have control over that confrontation. That's why she has to cover his face. That's why her fa she goes through the emotions she goes through is that she's facing down her trauma in that moment. Um, and that's why she can't go with him any further. She's understood what she needs to understand and she's left. And from then on, it's it's a Cooper defined by his purpose. It's a Cooper defined almost entirely by his want. He's he's almost mechanical. You know, he's he's so detached from his emotions. In a certain sense, I think we're seeing him through Laura's eyes in that way, that he's always just been this bizarre figure focused on tell on getting her to do something, and she doesn't really know what it is. This so, is cool. I'm really into this. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so. Finding Carrie Page, that's Laura trying to imagine who she could be if she hadn't had everything happen to her. Like, she tries to leave the forest the night she dies, but she can't. The grief won't let her. So she tries to imagine herself as someone else. But she can't. Dale won't let her. The violence of her life won't let her because there is the white horse. There is the, the terrifying dead man on the couch. Violence is always around her. And so the journey back is... Laura's journey back to herself. Um, the return is always Laura's return. Laura is the one. So what do you think is happening in the very final scene? She's acknowledging it. She gets there. She's pretended to be someone else. She's pretended that she could try and step out of time and not be the girl who died for the town's sins. She's tried so many ways of perceiving herself. She's even trying to say that that's not her house and projecting on, you know, the Chalfonts, the Tremonts. But at the very end of it, she remembers the grief that her mother went through. That, that moment, that Grace Zabriskie in episode one of the original run, mm. calling for Laura, realising that something's really, really wrong. Oh, it's the remembering of grief. <laughs> and Laura screams and electricity... The means by which magic is done, the means by which these worlds operate, is blown apart by the force of her facing it down and saying, this is my trauma, and I have to face it. I have to be in it. She wakes up at very last from that part of her dream. She is dead, and yet she lives. Oh boy, I think he just cracked Twin yeah. Peaks. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's that. We're going to have to laugh, otherwise we're all going to sob. Well, look, I was, I was a little bit tearing up at the end there. Oh, yeah. Sorry, I have a lot of lower emotions. Um, I should have got you to be my therapist. <laughs> <laughs> oh God, I'd be a terrible therapist. <laughs> Alright, now I just need you to, to step into an alternate reality and pretend that you're an emotionless robot so that you can pull yourself through, it's fine. He did actually tell me this week, but you don't want to be like a computer, do you? <laughs> um. okay. Relatable trauma feel. I kind of want to be a computer sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so shall we wrap this up with a discussion of, let's? will there be a season four? God, I hope not. I really hope not because I love my ending. I love it too. I'm never going to say no to the, oh, wor the yeah. world. <laughs> like, I mean, I kind of almost... There's, I mean, there's some things that I don't trust them with, but mm. this stuff, I feel like... You, I don't know. 
somehow there's made a trauma narrative that mm. makes me trust them in the, on those yeah. terms. And if they wanted to revisit it in some way, I don't know. I don't think I'd be opposed s- to it. No, I wouldn't be opposed my to it. My hope is that this is where I it ends. It's gonna no, be I definitely don't. Mm. Yeah. Will you watch deleted scenes if they're released on a Blu-ray? Oh, yeah. yeah. Okay. There's a chance of seeing Morf Sharon and Fenn's performance and, uh, great. Mm. Yeah, um, did you want to talk about Audrey or...? Oh, yes, so that okay, also but... ties into the theory um, because ultimately for me the show really does come down to the women because I'm who I am and this is what I like to do with media, so I'm just going to accept that about myself. <laughs> yeah. I, think, I think agree. Yeah, yeah um, I agree too. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I think Audrey... Audrey Horn gets what she wants, you know? Um, that is Audrey. She's... I think the reason that she's not heavily involved in the Cooper plot is because she's working her own way. I think my theory from back when I talked with you uh, in episode 16 still stands. Audrey worked out what's going on with the layers of reality. Audrey understood that to some extent, and Charlie was her keeper to try and ground her and anchor her to a day-to-day existence in the midst of all her trauma. And all she had to do was ask herself to step outside of it. Because for Audrey, well, one, she's alive. She gets that privilege of being able to ask for help. Whereas Laura's is a more interesting spiritual case. But I think that's that scene we see of her at the very last moment of episode 16, in this empty space, staring into mirrors, her stepping out of the dreams. And it's not pleasant. It's disorienting and upsetting and confusing because it's always going to be that like that it's disorienting and upsetting and confusing for Diane facing down the memory of what happened to her with Doppelkoop. It's disorienting and upsetting and confusing for Laura when she goes to a house that can't be hers. She's Carrie Page. So I think there was a deliberate thematic parallel there with Audrey, Diane and Laura all waking up in their own ways. Right, fantastic. Mm. Mm. What about, oh yeah, and then Cooper woke up at the end too. Yeah. He also also worked it out. And I still love that he kind of, he failed to understand just what he was actually there for. Because he was there for what Laura needed. He he got what he wanted and it was nothing like what he understood it to be. I would mind a season four with Cooper just like completely different. Oh, yeah. It's something totally new. A new Cooper every episode. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like Carl McLaughlin would be into that. He'd sign up for that. Oh, yeah. I know. Cooper would be like making wine. (laughs) Yes. Oh, my God. Yes. A Cooper for every letter of the alphabet. (laughs) Every one of us gets our own Cooper. Yep. Our Cooper inside. Mm-hmm. My inner Cooper. <laughs> My inside. Cooper, your Cooper. <laughs> our Cooper. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, that brings us to the end of um, our roundtable discussion of Twin Peaks. We'll be back again next week with some further chat. Um, and with further folk. Uh, further folk. Uh, various other folk who weren't able to make it today for various reasons. And another interview, this one with John Neff that I've been holding off on for a while. He was the sound designer who worked with... <laughs> Oh, fantastic. John Neff co-wrote the song No Stars with Rebecca Del Rio and worked with Lynch on Mm. um, Mulholland Drive and a bunch of other films. He has his own theories about uh, Twin Peaks as well, which he'll share. Ooh. Mm. Awesome. And that wraps up our roundtable discussion of Twin Peaks The Return. We're going to close out this week's episode with an interview with Damien Lund. 
Damien has a knack of finding projects he loves and then becoming involved in their production. And over the last couple of years, he's worked in various capacities on the TV shows The Leftovers and Mr. Robot. And he worked as a special effects supervisor in the forthcoming Kirsten Dunst movie Woodshock. In Twin Peaks The Return, Damien worked as a set dresser and wound up playing two fairly significant roles as an extra in Twin Peaks. I began by asking him how he inveigled his way into this production. All right, well, uh, as anyone knows, it's a diehard fan of uh, the series and or, you know, follows David Lynch. Um, there was a large hubbub that was brought up a few years ago about um, the, the potential for there being, uh, you know, a new series, you know, where you know, David did the tweet saying, you know, that, that Gummy Like is going to come back in style, which was basically a flash fire for anybody that was, you know, a fan of the show. Um, and when I got word of that, I guess and I just started turning over every stone that I could to try and get my foot in the door to start working on that. I started asking every person that I worked with in the industry, I, don't know, I guess throughout roughly at that point up to five years of working in the United States um, and various projects, if there was anyone that knew anyone that could get me in touch with David and or any of the people that way I could submit my resume, you know. So I started asking everyone. Um, you know, I had friends that worked on uh, with David on The Straight Story and uh, several, I guess, set decorators and or uh, lead men and whatnot. <clears throat> I'd ask them to try and find me any kind of information they could uh, from their call sheets, you know, just, you know, try and chase down, you know, someone that they haven't probably talked to in over 10 years. So yeah. long story short, I pretty much had kind of given up, and uh, I didn't think there was any chance of it whatsoever. Um, it's an amazing little twist of fate, but um, I was working on The Leftovers Season 2 for HBO, and uh, that was being filmed in Austin, Texas. And I'd worked on that pretty much off and on for, you know, I guess over like three to four months, and uh, it was drawing near to an end. And um, I made mention to somebody at HBO saying, hey, do you know anybody at Showtime or anything? And we were getting no help from them. And then somebody overheard me talking, and they said, well, you should go speak to a fellow that's the prop master. His last name is um, Spacek. And he goes, and uh, his aunt is Sissy, is Sissy Spacek, and she's <laughs> married to Mr. Fisk who is the art director, uh, I believe, and production designer for the majority of David Lynch's films. So I popped in there. I said hello to him. I told him my story. I told him my, my goals. And he uh, instantly said, yeah, I'll be happy to uh, you know, get you in touch with my, uh, my uncle. Basically, he said he's not taking that project on, but I do know for a fact that his assistant uh, is now going to be helming the production design for it. But I'll get you her email as well. Sent the uh, sent the production designer for Twin Peaks. I sent her a, an email explaining that I would like to come and work with her, and uh, what the pro current project I'm on. And she said, uh, "Well, you know, are you working with KK Barrett?" And I said, uh, "Yeah, KK Barrett is the production designer on this film here in Eureka." And she's like, "Well, you know, uh, your your future boss just walked away from that project to come and work for me." <laughs> Wow. I said, huh? Yeah, so she said, yeah, this woman by the name of Florencia Martin, who is the uh, set decorator, uh, she said that, yeah, she's uh, just left that project, and she's going to come work for me, and we're going to uh, be inquiring of that production, how well you work and what your aesthetic is, and if you uh, wind up passing with flying colors, then we'll definitely give you a call and let you know when you can start up in uh, Washington. Yeah, wow, okay. 
Cool. Yeah. So <laughs> ultimately, ultimately, I you know, uh, I wanted I, I I did that project my uh, and um, Eureka. It was right on the coast, beautiful coastline. And I'd never, uh, my mother had never seen the ocean. So I flew her out on the last few days of shoot to uh, come up and, uh, you know, come stay with me. And then we were going to take a drive up to Portland uh, where I was going to fly her back. And uh, as I basically on the day, I took her down to the beach up on this massive rock overlooking the Pacific for the first time in her life she ever sees it. I get a phone call. And that phone call came in saying, you will start work in two weeks in Seattle. Be ready. And that's how I got the job. <laughs> wow, fantastic. So what, is, what, is, what yeah. does the set dresser actually do on set? Uh, set dresser is more or less uh, in charge of seeing through all the production designer and set decorators' design aesthetic, which, of course, uh, Mr. Lynch has a very heavy hand in dictating exactly and precisely what, what is going to be in the content thereof. My job on that one, I guess, you know, I honestly, there's, there's, there's no job too big or too small for me to do anything for David. I probably would have done it for free. Basically, our job is to assimilate and get as many of the uh, non- uh, I guess the items that anything that an actor, anything that you see in a scene, anything that an actor touches is a prop. Anything else within that dynamic of that of that setting is a uh, art department. Right. Okay. Uh, I guess set de- set decorator. I mean, that's it. That's it, if, if there's items, you know. Whereas otherwise, if it was greens department, there's trees and they handle that. Or if there's you know painting, decoration and carpentry, then they're also extended parts of. The art department, but yeah, set decorating involves just kind of you know you're kind of a glamorized mover, and mm-hmm. uh, you know every now and again whenever they need to move a camera or get a couch out of the way or move something, they need somebody on point that knows exactly what's up, and they also have to have people that are pretty spot on about you know continuity and such. Yeah, I did the uh, the full run up in North Bend. My my first official like on set job was with the uh, Double R Diner. Right, okay. Cool. So that and, had already uh, been refurbished you know, by the time you got there, I guess? Yeah, yeah. I mean, they were putting the finishing touches on it. I mean, we were basically, you know, we'd taken, uh, you know, new boots and uh, new upholstery and all that. We had had that at our at our stores. I'd worked there for, uh, you know, in the art department for about, I think, close to two weeks. So I knew that it was coming up, and I was pretty excited, you know, personally uh, as a fan. Um, that we would have something to do with it, but yeah, they put me on as an assistant, Mr. Uh, <clears throat> Mr. Malone, who's their you know full-time on-set uh, set dresser, who's been you know he's been on the original series for you know quite I think you know the original series and also Firewalk with Me and anything else. So he and David are really close, and um, <clears throat> you know I guess uh, Mr. Malone took quite a shine to my uh, my zeal and my attention uh, <laughs> to detail. So he kind of requested that I stay on, you know, more often than not. Anytime there was an opportunity for it, he, he knew to ask for me. So I owe him a, a world of debt and, uh, you know, ever so grateful. Because, uh, yeah, it was, it was quite something to say when I was standing at the at the door. Like, you know, the first time I ever saw David was when he walked in to the Double R Diner. And uh, it was his first time to ever see it. So I was literally standing right at the door when he came in. And <laughs> he, he definitely lit up. It was like, you know, it, it was quite a joy to behold. No, so, uh, yeah. yeah. I mean, and it was it was a very intimate, you know, uh, setting. I mean, you know, there's only so many people you can fit in the room. And 
there's a lot of you know a lot of hustle bustle talent and uh, detailed items that that went into uh, that set. I am uh, also very proud to say that I am the first person in at that time I guess 25 years to uh, have a have a piece of pie in the Double R Diner as a fan. <laughs> yeah, can you talk um, about that our, for our, a little bit? Uh, well, it was <clears throat> we had uh, set up, you know, pretty much all the all the set dressing, and then the you know was the majority of all the props were put into place, and we were just kind of uh, you know waiting for production to you know kind of get around to bringing in a lot of other equipment and such, and you know art department had a moment to just kind of chill and sit back in the booth and just kind of take in what we had done, and Miss Martin, the uh, set decorator came in and she said, well, I guess uh, we should probably start making it look like people eat here. Um, we got all these pies, you know, need to get cut into. Who would like a slice? And I just, <laughs> I lit up like a firecracker and I said, uh, I would be happy to have that, please. And so she made me a, a, a plate of pie and set it down in front of me. And I looked over at uh, one of the other art department affiliates. I said, uh, you know, would you mind getting a picture of me of doing this? I'm like, oh, yeah, it would be a great idea. So they took a picture of me having a bite of pie, and, uh, yeah, and I, she instantly sent it over to me, and I probably did about, you know, 20 backflips internally. Um, <laughs> a lot of us got to actually see you eat pie at the end of Part 7 in the diner scene. Are you able to run through yeah. what's actually happening in that scene now? Um, you know, I think, I think you know, without you know, ultimately giving a lot of way of what, as far as, like, what was happening in that scene, I... I Personally, I don't know. I was, no one was allowed to read any scripts at all, except for the heads of the department, which I was not. Um, I actually did not want to read the script. I did not want to know the context and uh, direction of the of the story at all. I uh, you know I just did what I was asked to do on the day. And I just kind of put together, you know, through my own knowledge of the history of Twin Peaks, like you know who's going to be playing what, and I knew what. What sets were you know allocated to certain characters, but um, ultimately, yeah, I mean everything was abstract and it was it was shot in a way that that I had no you know context of knowing like what the what the key and seminal uh, you know content would be and or what it was to play up to. Okay, so, so uh, yeah, other, I mean I just I just have go ahead. Are there other crew members in that same scene with you? Um. Yeah, actually, the guy with his back to the camera that I'm sitting with is actually the the skip. Uh, he was uh, he's a uh, Mr. McLaughlin's uh, body double. Um, right. <laughs> he also he also plays a couple other different roles, I guess, and you know, and and just he was he's been a part of it since like way back in the day. So, did David Lynch actually direct that scene that you were in when you were an extra in the diner at the end of part seven? Um, yeah, I mean, like he directed every single. Theme. I mean, everything, all the entire content, you know, of the uh, of the project was all him for sure. So, how did you wind up in that yeah. seat? Like, why did why did why were you cast? Um, I, I believe that was uh, that was due to my friend. Uh, he's the uh, this second AD, Ime. Uh, um, he put me in there. He said, you know, hey, you know, we need to fill some bodies. You know, you come over here, and he just put me in, and uh, I I had no idea that it would be such a long drawn out scene. I thought it might be, you know, just some stock sort of flash footage that you would see of people in the double R, no clue whatsoever. You know, I knew that they just kind of they just let the camera roll and okay. they said, you know, just just ca just casually carry on like you normally would and, you know, it went on for a while, like a long yeah. while. 
Are you in any so, other um, club? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I'm I'm actually in quite a few various scenes that are scattered all throughout. I'd say at least seventy percent of uh, of the episodes. So I'm in I'm in I'm in something there. I'm um, but you know that's just the way it got pieced together. You know, a lot of extras save for uh, the, the the roadhouse and. You know, just uh, the casino scenes and other just various scenes, you know, just kind of walking in or walking past her. But I would definitely say, you know, like probably my most distinct scene would have been in uh, episode 15, um, at the end of uh, 15, when the veils are about ready to start playing and there's a small Asian girl in the booth. Um, mm-hmm. you, you'll, you'll, you'll find me in another uh, ominous character come in and, you know, politely remove her from the booth. <laughs> Oh right, that was you. Yeah, good expression, man. Like a, yeah. where you look. Yeah. Oh my god, you're such an asshole. <laughs> well, that one, that one I actually got you know personally directed by David on that one. Yeah, um, I interviewed Sabrina Sutherland last week, who told me that uh, the production was really, really efficient. You managed to like you know shoot a 18-hour movie in the space that it takes to make you know a 90-minute movie usually. Um, sure. So I'm, in, I'm interested, like, since Lynch does a lot of improvising, or we hear that a lot of the key scenes in Twin Peaks history were improvised, like the appearance of Bob at the foot of the bed and Audrey's dance, you know, was just written that morning. Were, were sure. there scenes like that? You know, I, I mean, honestly, that's, that's what I was saying. You know, anything out of context, I wouldn't be able to tell you what necessarily was a, an overt on the fly maneuver or, or decision. I, I don't I didn't know the script. No one no one really did. <laughs> and if they did they were they were sworn to secrecy on that, you know, even even amongst us. And you know, I got like little abstract mentions. But, you know, other than that, I, I really, you know, don't know precisely. I mean me getting thrown in as a biker, yeah, that was on the fly. I think at the end of the day they said, you know, we we, we need someone to be a, a biker and are you you ready to go to uh, ready to go to wardrobe? <laughs> they sent me down there to wardrobe and got me kitted up and uh, brought me back. And then all of a sudden, I'm basically being personally directed by David himself. And uh, yeah, that was. I mean, that 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 probably was the whipped cream on top of the first bite of uh, pie at the Double R for me. <laughs> <laughs> I understand. Sabrina mentioned that the cast and crew were given a three-year option to be picked up again. Did, were you given an option in your contract? Um, I don't recall reading. I, I honestly, I, I really didn't think that there was going to be another one. So there was. I think by now, I think everyone on board would know that I want to go back. <laughs> <laughs> okay. But sadly, I'm not a part of the Los Angeles Union Collective. So I guess the only way that you know I'd really be able to try and get myself involved in it would be either be uh, brought in as an actor officially, you know, or, you know, move back up to uh, North Bend, I guess, if they were to do some key scenes there. Okay. Um, so what, what are your theories about the future of Twin Peaks? <laughs> you know, I, I, I honestly, I have to leave that directly to Mr. Frost and uh, Mr. Lynch. You know, I, I really don't know their angle on it. I personally would love to see it get fleshed out, and I, I think the fans would be more than overwhelmed to have uh, a continuity. Uh, I know my countless friends that I know that have been diehard fans you know, are actually kind of suffering a 
post-mortem of uh, not being able to tune in and enjoy it, you know, every Sunday night like I was enjoying it. That was a good 18-hour run. I'm I'm not going to lie. It would have been, yeah. uh, you know, I mean, like I, I can't I can't thank um, Mrs. Sutherland enough for her her contributions and for her kindness and for allowing me to to continue being a part of that as well as David. Uh, I can say that the greatest personal accomplishment I think I could ever had in my career based on this project was uh on the final on the morning when we were all basically getting ready to leave the leave the uh, the casino I'm still probably half drunk and half awake and uh and I'm walking through the main foyer and I just hear a voice come out from behind me just going hey Damien Damien <laughs> turn around I see the I see the white-haired wizard walking right at me with his arms out and he comes up and just puts his arms around me and gives me the biggest hug and puts his hands on my shoulders and says, you know, have a great time back, you know, have a safe trip back to Texas. Couldn't have done it without you, buddy. See you on the next one. Got a flight to catch. Going to France. Can't be late. <laughs> See you later, bro. And he walks off, and I was just completely stunned. And he had all the other heads of the department kind of that had already said goodbye to him, and they all saw this. and. One just says, man, like, that's a hell of a way to wake up, huh? I said, well, you can go ahead and pinch me because I think I'm still dreaming. It, it was a dream come true, and there's there's no other way to put how how humbled and grateful I am unto every person that played a role in allowing me to be a part of that project, you know. And, you know, I think we all pulled it together because of our, our love for the story, our love for the the content, the characters, and for, you know, ultimately for David as a whole. <laughs> 